1: Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Mike Santoli in for Scott Wapner here at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. This make or break hour begins with some sudden turbulence disturbing the market's recent calm as higher long-term bond yields and some mixed earnings reactions help send the indexes toward what would be their worst day in months. You see the S&P 500 down more than one and a quarter percent, pretty much near the lows of the day, 45.11 or so was the low of the day the nasdaq has been the big underperformer a lot of the winning stocks in that group including semiconductors leading to the downside about eighty percent of all volume is uh negative today on the new york stock exchange take a look at treasuries that's part of the story as well ten-year yield up about four point oh eight a lot of that gain in the yields on the long end happened after we got a stronger than expected adp payrolls report. And we also have had uh, recent kind of indications of higher oil prices and maybe some inflation concerns. So a lot of things in the mix, of course, along with that Fitch downgrade of the U.S. federal debt. That all brings us to our talk of the tape where we ask, is this just a routine shakeout in stocks after this powerful multi-month rally or a sign of a much tougher tape ahead? Here to discuss all that is Rithall's Wealth Management CEO and CNBC contributor, josh brown so josh uh we can we can write it any way uh we like we could basically say everything lined up for this we had a five-month winning streak in stock sentiment was getting a little bit frothy technicals were stretched we have a negative seasonality something's going to come along uh, to maybe create an air pocket and we did that on the other hand we also had a lot of bears capitulating uh the economy looks really strong and everybody agrees with that so do we have you know the makings of a perfect ironic top in the market where along that spectrum would you sit yourself
2: well as someone who is really good at explaining what just happened I would say (laughs) that this is not this is not very much more complicated than sell the news you had a huge run-up into this earnings season we're in the middle of it I I think we're we're on track to see a 7% decline in earnings for the S&P 500, which was the expectation for this quarter. Uh, And that's where we are. And, you know, you've had a lot of beating, believe it or not. If you look at that, we've had 51% of S&P companies um, report earnings. And you have 80% of these companies uh, beating on earnings, which is the highest number we've seen in seven quarters. So you're getting those good results. That was the reason for this huge rally we've had since May. Okay, we have them now. 64% of companies beat on revenue. Now you could say, well, that sounds low. Shouldn't it be like 72, 73? Yes, but here's the other way to, to, to look at that. You're seeing companies with decelerating revenue growth still finding a way to beat on on margins with that earnings beat. So I think on balance, like we're getting the justification for the rally we've already had. We're not really getting a justification for further gains from here. One thing I want to point out, very strange situation. Look at the reaction in stocks after they report. The company's missing numbers are doing better on average the next day than the company's beating. Let me put some meat on those bones, and then I'll turn it back to you. Um, companies reporting a beat on earnings, and a lot of my companies have beat and fallen, that I'm involved with, an average price decrease of 0.7%. The five-year average uh, is, is plus one. So it's not even an environment that's rewarding better-than-expected uh, reports. So if we just accept that that we've had a lot of the run-up and we're just getting the news that people are selling on, I think it's a better take than, "Uh uh-oh, something's materially changed because we're still in an uptrend. You really have to pull the lens back and you can see that.
1: There's no doubt. Um, You know, you look at the chart. The trend has been encouraging. Uh, We've kind of been rotating around. The market's broadened out. I was pointing out earlier that the lows for the day today and really where we're trading right now on the S&P is its 20-day average, right? If you want to be a real kind of scalper, short-term trader, that's what you look at in terms of buying the first dip. On the other hand, you know, the sweet spot that the market has been in, uh, where essentially we got comfortable that our companies are going to make their numbers. The economy seems like it's far away from recession. Uh, and, you know, yields weren't doing a whole lot. Maybe there's a little more complication here. And, and we were in a, a market mode that wasn't really interested in thinking too hard about the tough stuff. Uh, and we get this Fitch downgrade, we get yields going above 4%, and the sweet spot looks a little bit less sweet.
2: All right, so the Fitch thing these are not serious people. I think it almost seems like their intention is to influence the negotiations in Congress, mm-hmm. but nothing's really gonna change there. We've basically gone 20 years letting the Fed worry about the budget, and both sides of the aisle are guilty of this, and the, none of that has been a reason to, to stop investing, and I don't think that's gonna change anytime soon. It's true, debt uh, debt is is going higher, deficits are going higher. Uh, the spending has gotten out of control. The stimulus plans are actually creating more inflation. Fine. That's OK. Uh, it's, I don't think it's, it's the main thing here. What's most interesting in fixed income right now, at least to me, is the steepening. Uh, every yeah. Treasury yielding three years or less is down right now. Every tre- Treasury bond yielding five years or more is up. Uh, the 10-year, two-year spread is now down to minus 0.82, which is the least inverted it's been since the failure of silicon valley bank to me that's the big story uh the 10-year yield is now back at its highest level you have to go back to thanksgiving uh it's only 14 basis points away from the 2022 highs that's the story here it's a good story it's a story of an economy not poised to fall into recession let's just take it as that and not try to make it more complicated
1: sure um the, uh, let's hear what Jamie Dimon actually had to say about the Fitch downgrade and, uh, and some other macro issues as he uh, talked to Leslie Picker uh, last hour.
3: It doesn't really matter that much. Uh, you know, the markets decide. It's not the rain agencies who make these big decisions. Number two, they point out some issues which we all knew about, about our debt ceiling crisis and things like that. But uh, number three, most important, the American public, this is the most prosperous nation on the planet. It's still the most prosperous nation on the planet. It's the most secure nation on the planet. And I would point out to the rating agency if I could that there are a bunch of countries rated higher than us, like AAA, but they live under the American uh, enterprise military system. For, to have them be AAA and not America is kind of ridiculous.
1: Let's bring in Liz Young of SoFi to uh, talk about that and all things markets. Liz, um, so hard to argue with the idea that you know, Fitch or a rating agency in general is not going to tell the world how it should view the solvency of the United States or the attractiveness of the paper. But it's a little bit of an occasion to, to take notice where we are in terms of fiscal position, uh, the state of the economy, sustainability of current trends. How do you think about it?
4: I mean, this is not surprising stuff, right? We knew that debt was high. We knew that we had continued to create debt in order to cover everything that we've done and stimulate the economy and sort of save us from disaster, a la March of this year. So I don't think that this is a huge surprise. The reason for the downgrade, I would agree with Josh and I would agree with Jamie that it's not that big of a deal. It's one ratings agency. It's one little step downward. It probably goes back up decently soon. I think actually the bigger risk right now, which we knew when the debt ceiling issue happened, was that we just kind of kicked that down the road. We got through summer, and then it was going to come back up again in September or October. We have not entirely resolved that issue. Now, I think we probably will resolve it, but that doesn't mean it's going to come without conflict and it's not going to heighten up you know, the volatility in the market just because we're sort of waiting to see. And as we know, those things usually happen over a weekend. It always seems to happen when there's already volatility in the market, and we find out in the 11th hour. So, That's right. eyes on September, October for that.
1: Yes, uh, there's no doubt about that. And I think, so we all kind of agree here. Most people, I think, involved in the markets agree that this is not in itself uh, much of a change uh, of the outlook or a reason to incrementally worry. That being said, We do have the market down 1% for the first time if we close here since May. So clearly, even if it's just kind of a convenient excuse or just a coincidence, we were in a place where the market uh, had some pent-up selling to do.
4: Well, I think it was pent-up valuations, Mm -hmm. right? And you're looking at, if you just look at the broad indices and the pattern that you see today, the Dow is down less than the NASDAQ. The Russell is down more than the S&P, right? So the stuff that had run and had a really good July is giving back some of that. I think that's very natural. I think that's healthy. Even if you're a bull in this market and you think that this is a new bull market... These little pullbacks are good. These little mini corrections are good because it gets you back to more of a right sized price and it gets you back to evaluation where if you missed it and you want to be in, you get an opportunity. I don't think this is the last daily pullback that we're going to see in August. But again, I think it's healthy. The question that remains and that continues to be further and further away, at least for me, is will this be the beginning of a deeper pullback? Will this be something that gets added on to with credit issues or something that could happen in fall and surprise us from the Fed.
1: Sure. And I guess, Josh, to that point, I mean, in theory, there's a lot of house money that's been built up uh, so far this year in equities, the total return in the S&P. Went above twenty percent, up thirty-one percent from the lows. And even if you look back farther, you know, you look at the five and ten-year annualized returns to this point. It's like twelve and a half percent. It's not like the market owes you anything, right here. Uh, so for selling off on good earnings, at least in the short term, uh, and uh, and everyone seems to like the market after they were expecting a retest of the lows for the start of the year. Uh, how does that shape up for you?
2: I think. Today is what the old-timers would call an inside-out day. Their 20 best-performing stocks in the S&P 500 this year have gains on average of 83%, and that's an average. So a lot of these things have more than doubled. That's your top 20 stocks. Go down the list. Eight of them are tech, six are consumer discretionary, three industrials, two healthcare, one communication. It's pretty broad-based. If you think, if you think about an inside-out day, um, it's it's like all counter trend stuff going on. Those stocks, those top 20 names of the year, they're down today on average 3%, way worse than the overall market. So that's the kind of thing that you see on, on a day like today. And again, I think it's counter trend. Uh, the reality is uh, Liz is right. If you've been locked out of this market because it's been trending and you just can't think straight and you're watching it tick up day after day after day, this is what you wanna have happen. I really don't care what Abercrombie and Fitch thinks. Uh, I think this is a situation where you want to look for opportunities to get long. You want to see stocks pull back. If you want to use a moving average as kind of a gauge where they should pull back to, where the buyers step in, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, But we'll get through earnings here. And then we'll be basically facing a situation where we've had the trough quarter. We're not expected to decline another 7% in earnings next quarter. So this is, this is the, the, the trough is here. Uh, and I think people will uh, go into the end of the year feeling positive about that, um, not, not knowing where earnings will trend, but probably not down.
1: Yeah. i uh, going to just walk right by you, you know, invoking old timers. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know that was directed at me, but that's OK, Josh. Uh, we'll get to it another time. Please. No. Not you. Okay. Even older timers. Yeah. (laughs) Got it. Um, Liz, I did mention earlier that if you looked at the uh, the tick by tick of how Treasury yields traded today, Mm -hmm. it was actually yields lower across the board overnight because, of course, it's the safe haven trade, even when the story is, you know, somebody downgrades the debt. And then yields went higher after the ADP number. We all also want to kind of take the ADP data with a a grain of salt. Last month it was wildly off, looked way stronger than the official jobs number did, but maybe – the market's saying, are we going to bet twice in a row that it's a couple of hundred thousand jobs off for Friday's jobs report? I, I bring that up only to say, just as everybody was glad we got soft landing conditions, maybe it's looking less soft. In other words, no landing. We got 3.9% Atlanta Fed GDP now. It's early. Uh, and then we're we're sort of gearing up for what is the Fed going to have to do to restrain this economy again?
4: Yeah, well, if you look at just the way that things usually happen in the formula, the market moves first, then earnings, then the economy. So if, if, if you're a bull and you think that 2022 was the correction that we needed, that's over, right? Now we're in the third quarter of negative earnings growth. If this is the, the third quarter and the last quarter of negative earnings growth, we come back out of it. Mm-hmm. Wasn't so bad. Wasn't great, but wasn't so bad. So that's an earnings recession, so yep. to speak. If both of those things are foretelling what should happen in the economy, it shouldn't be that big of a pullback. It shouldn't be that big of a contraction. We haven't seen it yet, but it's still probably going to happen. Part mm-hmm. of that is that if you look at what's happening with earnings, Josh mentioned this earlier. Revenue is missing more often than earnings are missing, right? So revenue is coming down, which is also natural as inflation comes down. Mm -hmm. Companies have to manage that really, really well with their operating costs. They usually don't manage that very well with operating costs. So the chances of margins continuing to contract are higher That does eventually bleed through into the economy because we're so driven by consumption. So I would expect a contraction Mm -hmm. in the economy. But that's only if this all continues at this clip, in which case the Fed doesn't really have to do much more. It Mm -hmm. worked, right? I'm still not sold that it's over, right? And the yield curve inversions, I know I'm obsessed with them. Every time I am on a program on this network, I talk about it. But they keep me up at night. There's something wrong there. It's not functioning Mm -hmm. as it should. And the re steepening is usually where we get the pain. So if we are able to re steepen and get out of that without pain, I will absolutely accept defeat and say, okay, you know what? It didn't happen. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, look, we are still within the lag period of when we can get an inverted yield curve and then we don't yet see a recession. It was very long in 06 and into 08 and all that stuff. So we'll see. Uh, Josh, you were going to say. I just I I would point out something really
2: interesting that I think a lot of people are starting to pick up on. uh, If you are a wealthy person in America, let's just say upper middle class, not a billionaire, but like the people who own 80 percent of the stock market, let's say, Um, So upper middle class and you don't have floating rate debt, which most people don't. It's very likely if you were carrying a mortgage, you refinance that uh, during the the 24 months where it was basically two or three percent to do so. Um, And so if you're in that situation and you have cash, higher rates actually have acted as economic stimulus. If you if you if you're not facing a situation where Fud, Fed funds affect you negatively, and again, upper middle class, they don't carry credit card balances. Um, what do you think they're doing right now? This is why you're not getting that economic slowdown. This is this is this is exactly what's happening. That really was was hard to foresee in advance. But if you talk to old time, Michael, sorry, if you talk to old timers <laughs> who were rich in the early '80s, they'll tell you it was the same thing. They didn't have credit card debt and they weren't looking to buy a house with a new mortgage. They loved 15 percent interest rates. They couldn't count all the money they were making. That's why every single person you know this summer is in the south of France cleaning out the Chanel store. That's why everyone you know is in Amalfi, in Puglia. That's what that's what people are doing who are who are market investors with cash. And for those people you're not getting any kind of a slowdown in their consumption. And if yeah. anything, you're getting a double wealth effect, stocks and yields. And I, I don't know what the Fed does about that. I just think it's something that we should start thinking about.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, there's no doubt about it. It's a major offset. Um, and in fact, I think it was the Wall Street Journal said it's, it's almost yes. equal the amount of increasing interest expense that tends to fall most heavily on people who are net borrowers and not net savers. So we do have this uneven situation. But yes, those people who would be in the stock market probably have uh, had a windfall to some degree in terms of income. You know, Liz, this, this little bit of, uh, uh, of, of market volatility also comes after a period when we saw Massive short covering in the hedge fund community, according to Goldman Sachs, coming into this week. In fact, the most active short covering activity in, in a long time and a, and a run in the meme stocks. I mean, it seems very textbook in a lot of ways. People started to get a little overexcited. Uh, the silly stuff started to run a little bit. And now today you see all that stuff getting kind of wiped out. So, again, it might be to your point of this is kind of a healthy Uh, sort of gut check in the short term.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's exuberant, right? And that's what happens. You see it happen, you're not really sure why, but then you start to chase it and everybody just sort of piles on. Something that I talked about yesterday on halftime, I'll bring up again, P.E. ratios and valuations are a terrible timing mechanism, but they do a decent job of telling us what the forward return expectations are. If you look at the P.E. ratio on the S&P right now, let's say 19.8 times, it suggests that an annualized return for the next 10 years is 3.6%. That's pretty disappointing, Mm -hmm. given that the average is 7%. So we need a pullback in those valuations, or we need earnings to absolutely go gangbusters to justify that. And I think some of this is healthy for that reason. I want those valuations and that particular ratio to suggest better returns for the next 10 years, rather than this sort of flat inflation-like
1: return. Yeah, and here we go uh, to your point, uh, S&P making session lows, 45.10, down about 1.4% as we sit here uh, and uh, and talk about it. Liz, Josh, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Oh, and by the way, Josh, uh, as you know, I'll see you Friday for a CNBC special, Taking Stock. Josh and I will be together for the full hour, tackling the biggest stories impacting your money. Catch it this Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern. It's almost too much. Right here on CNBC. (laughs) Almost too much? I was counting on you to make it. It's absolutely too much. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Josh, see you soon. (laughs) Let's now get to our question of the day. We want to know, Where is the best place to invest right now? Is it stocks, bonds, cash, or real estate? Head to at CNBC closing bell on X, formerly Twitter, to vote. We'll share the results later in the hour. Let's get a check on some top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Christina Parts is here with that. Hey, Christina.
5: Hi. Well, we've got a couple of tech ETFs that I want to get to and in danger of recording their worst day of the year. That would be the SMH. The semiconductor ETF is down over, what, 3% so far and is on pace for back-to-back losses. Results from AMD yesterday, specifically around its data center weakness, did not inspire confidence in the chip space. You can see the Vanek. ETF down almost 3.8%. And let's switch to the computing ETF. Sky also down over 3% and on pace to break a brief win streak. Component Paycom is weighing on the computing sector and is one of the worst performing stocks in the S&P 500 after the company issued weak guidance in its latest earnings report. Paycom down 18, almost 19%. Like...
1: Christina, thank you very much. Talk to you again soon. We are just getting started here. Up next, much more from CNBC's exclusive interview with J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon and his take on the banks, regulation, and the overall market. We will bring you all the highlights after this break. Dow down 350. We're live from the New York Stock Exchange. You're watching Closing Bell on
6: CNBC.
7: yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination yahoofinance.com that's yahoofinance.com
1: welcome back to closing bell jp morgan ceo jamie diamond sitting down with our senior banking correspondent leslie picker for an exclusive cnbc interview within the past hour leslie joins us now live from montana with the highlights leslie
8: Hey, Mike, you can actually uh, potentially see Jamie behind me. He's on his annual bus tour, and he's currently hosting a luncheon with some clients here in Montana. Uh, But as you mentioned, it was a wide-ranging interview. It was on the heels of some pretty sizable regulatory actions last week, known as Basel III Endgame, um, which heightens uh, the capital requirements for the big banks. It's a, a proposal at this stage. But he said that the banking industry has so many rules but very little calibration among those rules.
3: We need certainty, policy, that you know, the stress test clearly didn't work. So we, you know, been looking, we do 100 a week, they do one, and they act like that's the real stress for the company. I'm far more worried about China and cyber than I am about that stress test. And I, I just think, and the other thing, we don't have many conversations with anymore. We should be having conversations with our about what we're worried about, what they're worried about. There's almost none of that. So it's both lack of transparency and lack of conversation with real practitioners. A lot of people in ivory towers, a lot of opinions here, they've never been in the real world. I'd like to see them get in the boxing ring one day.
8: And while uh, Fed officials would say that heightened capital requirements are important for financial stability, Diamond believes that the March and April turmoil wouldn't have been prevented by higher capital rules. He said they wouldn't have made a difference, but he was critical of the regulators handling of the Silicon Valley Bank demise.
3: I also think we made huge mistakes on Silicon Valley Bank. I hope the regulators are going to be looking at that one day. What went place? You know, we created a crisis and we created a melting cube that maybe didn't have to happen. They should be asking a lot of questions of themselves. Like whenever we make a mistake, we spend a lot of time on what I call the after-action report, the post-mortem. What did we do wrong? What can we do better? How do we make sure we're doing that across our company? You know, we know we're going to make mistakes. So I don't think we should treat every mistake like because you know, it's a violation of morality or something like that. But I think they should be doing a little bit of that, a little soul-searching.
8: In that category of D.C. soul searching, he also said, uh, you know, that may include what we do about the debt ceiling. Diamond said we should get rid of it, saying it's always, quote, used in a way that makes it very difficult. We need certainty in the world and we should have more of it. Mike.
1: Yeah, Leslie, um, some, some somewhat familiar themes that uh, Jamie Diamond has hit on over the years in terms of, you know, the risk of uh, perhaps a higher bond yield, interest rate environment uh, in general, but also potentially the risks of the non-regulated or less regulated sectors of finance. Mm -hmm. I was interested in what he had to say about, you know, the private capital, uh, private credit markets and and what that could mean uh, about, you know, general economic stability
8: yeah, he said basically, with higher capital rules, a lot of the business will be moved over into those non-bank financials in a lesser regulated a lesser regulated area. He said, uh, private equity hedge funds uh, would be dancing in the streets if these proposals came to pass. And uh, you know that that's been the criticism from a lot in the banking industry, just this idea that, you know, when you regulate too much the entities that are already, um, enduring a lot of regulation, you just move business, you move that lending into areas that have less oversight, less transparency. Of course, the SEC is trying to change that somewhat, um, but that's been the criticism from uh, the banking side the whole time these higher capital requirements have been discussed.
1: Yeah. And, you know, he even mentioned just basic mortgages, uh, in fact, uh, coming into that category mm-hmm. of, of non-bank uh, origination. Also, though, uh, seemed like he was relatively comfortable with the current condition of the economy. Talking again about, you know, consumers yeah. seem like they're in decent shape or in an under-leveraged position relative to how we were you know, before prior recessions uh, and things like that. So perhaps he's uh, a little bit less wary of the environment.
8: Yeah, and he spoke about that specifically in response to what Fitch did with its downgrade. He said the economy here is resilient. Um, And to your point, he uh, really believes that the the strength of the consumer, the fiscal spending, I mean, all of that is is keeping the economy on a, a solid trajectory. He thinks it could actually be um, stronger if there weren't regulation, but he thinks it's doing okay. He noted the risks that he has in the past. Of course, that's QT. That's the geopolitical situation, specifically the war in Ukraine. Those are some of the big risks that he's focused on. But overall, I agree with you. His, his tone, his tenor was, was really quite positive.
1: Absolutely. Well, great conversation, Leslie. Uh, good stuff and, uh, and enjoy it out Thank there. You. Thank you very much. Leslie Picker up next. We're setting you up for a busy afternoon of earnings. Analyst Dan Dole standing by with what he's watching when PayPal and Robin Hood report. Plus, Disney having a tough day along with the broader market. And we have new reporting this hour on the fate of ESPN. Those details when Closing Bell returns.
6: From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve.
1: Index is at the lows of the day. The Dow now clicking to a 400-point loss, down 1.1%. The S&P 500 uh, right above the 4,500 level, down about a percent and a half on the day. Meantime, PayPal shares uh, sinking as well as the company gears up to report second quarter earnings in overtime. Those results will be one of the few key prints giving a deeper look into the digital side of consumer spending. Joining me now at Post 9 with what to expect is is Dan Dolev of Mizuho Securities. Dan, good to see you. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Uh, set us up for PayPal. I mean, the stock has kind of uh, been in the wilderness for a little while. It seems there's some concern about fee compression or the take rate, but trying to maybe bottom out there in terms of the fundamentals. So what can we expect this afternoon?
9: Yeah, I think the key thing, I mean, the key thing that got the stock, killed the stock in the first quarter, it was down like 20% is that take rate compression. They've got two ecosystems, right? The branded checkout and the unbranded, which is Braintree. And people didn't believe that the reason the take rate is compressing is because unbranded is growing five times faster. I actually did the work, and I think that's what's happening. What we expect here in the second quarter is basically them to beat what they guided to. They should do at least double-digit organic growth in the branded side. And if we see that take rate compression abate a little bit, I think the stock's going to rip.
1: Is that not a concern, even if it is? kind of them losing market share to themselves in a lower margin way on an ongoing basis?
9: Yeah, I mean, they are lo- They might be not losing market share to themselves, but I think what's happening is they have to basically the gross be... The growth differential. Correct. They yeah. have to be in that space because, you know, if they're not in that space, they're going to lose share to Audi and they're going to lose share to, um, you know, Stripe. They mm-hmm. have to be in that unbranded space. And by the way, it helps them actually get access to more merchants. So it's a an offensive and a defensive move at the same time.
1: Um, do want to hit uh, Robinhood. What have been the trends there? We have seen a little bit of a revival, things like options, trading volumes and, and the rest of it. So what's the what's the setup?
9: Yeah. You know, I'm a crypto bear. But yeah. surprisingly, you know, we talked about it a lot. But I, and surprisingly, they're actually gaining share from Coinbase. Mm-hmm. We've proved it in uh, April and May. In crypto. So they're gaining share in a space that I don't like very much. That being said, they're killing it. They're crushing it on options. Contract volumes or contract prices are actually coming down because of the VIX is coming down, volatility is coming Mm -hmm. down. The most important thing on Robinhood, and that's going to make or break the stock, is the um, margin growth because they're saving a lot of money and also retirement. Mm -hmm. This is a big initiative. If they do well on retirement, if they give you a few data points on retirement... This is going to make the stock work really, really well.
1: Yeah, I guess the, uh, the, the bid there is to broaden the franchise out, obviously, but beyond transaction pricing. Just quickly, I did want to hit on SoFi, which has been a story for, for several days right now. Uh, big rebound on the, uh, their numbers. And, and how does the stock set up now valuation? wise
9: I think it's actually, you know, you haven't even seen the start of what's going to happen here. I think it's actually very, very cheap. Like this could be like the next like JP Morgan of Bank of America in the future, branchless, bank, getting a ton of deposits, the big opportunity here, and this is the work that we've done today, we see 350 to $400 billion of student refinancing TAM. None of this is in consensus right now. Stocks trading down today, mm-hmm. but you know, in three months, we'd be sitting here and people would say, oh, Dan, you told us that three months ago, that this is a big opportunity because as the moratorium ends, there's a massive pent-up demand for student loan refinancing. So I actually think it's very, very cheap. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best banks out there.
1: All right. Yeah. Well, the stock has in the past traded along with the prospects for student loan repayment. We'll see if that continues. Dan, good to see you. Thanks, Got to run. Thank you. All right. Up next, we're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close. Christina standing by with those. Hi, Christina.
5: The power of company guidance. Two stocks moving in very different directions because of their outlooks. I'll explain next.
1: Just about 20 minutes until the closing bell, the Dow down 1%. Let's get back to Christina for a look at the key stocks to watch. Christina.
5: Well, we got a couple of earnings movers, starting with Humana. Shares of the health insurer are surging after they reported earnings that beat estimates and also forecast, there's that outlook conversation, of expanding Medicare Advantage business. And that's why shares up over 5%. But on the other end of the spectrum, SolarEdge falling today after its earnings report missed estimates falling is probably an understatement because it's down almost 18% while the revenue miss was small investors are concerned about current quarter revenue guidance amid waning solar demand Mike
1: Christina thank you now to a developing story on Disney new reporting on cnbc.com regarding the future of ESPN and its search for minority partners Alex Sherman has those details Alex know you've been uh, been on this story what's the what's the latest
10: so a few, a few new details to pass along just Briefly, background here. Uh, It was last month that Bob Iger went on our air in an interview with David Faber and said he was looking for strategic partners for ESPN. Uh, About 10 days ago or so, I broke the story that uh, ESPN has been in talks with the leagues, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the NFL, uh, as potential partners there, where the leagues themselves would take stakes. You can add the NHL to that now, too, I found out. So all four leagues in talks with ESPN to be potential minority stakeholders here. Uh, Disney has is paying a consulting fee to two former executives, Kevin Mayer, Tom Staggs, um, who have both worked closely with Bob Iger for many years when they were at Disney, and even informally uh, in recent years when they were not at Disney, uh, to provide advice about what to do with ESPN. I'm told a full spin of ESPN uh, isn't totally off the table here if ESPN can't find a good minority partnership But Mayor Staggs and ESPN President Jimmy Pataro are focused on what Bob Iger wants here, which is to keep a majority control of ESPN and then find some majority stakeholders, whether or not that's the leagues or someone else.
1: Yeah, and Alex, I mean, in the days since you have... Uh, broken that story. Clearly, all of the the questions around such an arrangement have been raised, right? I mean, look, the leagues rely on these big checks written by the networks uh, like ESPN uh, in order to Uh, to actually pay their owners out. And that's the whole value of the leagues. And of course, other networks are also in there as well. So presumably there would have to be some kind of revenue participation by those leagues. Uh, All these things perhaps have been hashed out. Has anything happened since then that makes that scenario seem more or less likely to you? Well,
10: I can't comment on it from the league's perspective. I I talk about it in the story on CNBC.com. There's still a lot of reasons why I think the leagues might not go down this path. You risk irritating the other media providers who you're relying on uh, for bidding rights here. If you take a stake in ESPN, you may give them preferential treatment because you're going to care more about the performance of ESPN than all of the other various partners. What I do think has maybe changed a little bit, uh, in part with, with the uh, news now that, that both mayor and Stags are helping out Iger here, is that Iger seems committed to doing something with ESPN. And that's news, because Mm. for years, Bob Iger has resisted doing anything with ESPN. Uh, ESPN has been the crown jewel of Disney for decades. And now there is a realization, I think, even at Bob Iger's level, that this asset is now potentially a drag on earnings moving forward. So doing nothing is actually going to be a negative for the stock moving forward. So he's kind of boxed into a position, as so many people have canceled traditional cable TV, as they transition into this direct-to-consumer business, which by the way, also a little news nugget for you, uh, I'm told that that direct-to-consumer ESPN probably won't be launched either this year or next year. So we're thinking about 2025 or beyond. Uh, But as they transition to this world, either they're gonna need to have some minority stakeholders, or they're gonna think about having to do something even more drastic, like spinning out ESPN completely.
1: Yeah, that's a smart point. There's almost no doubt that the valuation uh, it gets a bit punished based on uh, their exposure to the, uh, the linear ecosystem there. Big change from the past. Alex, thanks so much. Catch you again soon. Last chance to weigh in on our uh, question of the day. We asked, where is the best place to invest right now? Stocks, bonds, cash, or real estate? Head to at CNBC closing bell on X. We'll bring you the results after this break. Let's get the results of our question of the day. We asked, where's the best place to invest right now? Stocks, bonds, cash, or real estate stocks? The clear winner. Everyone wants to buy this dip, which now stands at about 1.3% on the day in the S&P 500. After this break, your earnings rundown, the key themes and figures to watch when Qualcomm and MGM report. That and much more when we take you inside the market center. We're now in the closing bell market zone Wells Fargo Samir Samana is here to break down today's sell off and share what could come next. Plus, we're watching two earnings reports in overtime today. Contessa Brewer on what to expect out of MGM and Christina Parts keeping an eye on Qualcomm. Welcome all, Samir. A uh, lot of people coming into July after five straight winning months in the S&P say, you know what, we're due for a little bit of a pullback. A lot of folks felt like they wanted to buy that dip. You've been positioned a little more defensively coming into this. How do you view today's action?
11: I mean we're not surprised at all right i mean we are kind of through that phase that fever if you want to call it where people pay ever higher multiples for the same stream of earnings. Um, and now you, you kind of go right back to all right you know we've had you know a lot of things play out kind of better than feared but you know and i know that we can go from better than feared to not as good as expected in, in a dime in these markets and unfortunately i think that's probably what we're in store for into august and september
1: What if uh, the other side of it being uh, investors paying higher valuations for what they consider to be a rising stream of earnings, at least looking into next year? Because it seems as if, you know, if you could explain the trade uh, of the last few months, it's inflation coming down more than the economy has been weakening. And it looks like where earnings are perhaps on the upswing again.
11: And sure, look, that would be great, right? But the tricky part is if you look at the four-week change in both 2023 and 2024 consensus estimates for the S&P, they're both flat, right? So, you know, that's what you would expect to see is eventually earnings have got to start to improve. The tricky part is they're not. And that tells us that, you know, again, we're just in this phase where, you know, people are enjoying the fact that things could have been worse up to this point. We appreciate the fact that Wiley Coyote might be sinking into the canyon at a slower pace. But, you know, at the end of the day, unfortunately, he is still falling. Um, And so we we just don't want to play that game.
1: And so um, how bad do you think things will be? In other words, if if better than feared is not going to be enough, are we are you pushing against the emerging consensus now that a recession is not on the horizon?
11: We are. We're still in the recession camp. And the reason we are in the recession camp is that's the only way to solve for inflation. Otherwise, you're going to have a Fed that is forced to go further. And if they are forced to go further, that Fed funds rate at higher levels than markets expect will drag that 10-year higher. And every time we've gone north of 4%, the market has been unwilling to pay the multiples that they're currently paying. So for all those different reasons, about the only way this really works out in a positive way is if a recession comes sooner, Inflation is solved for. And then the Fed actually can cut rates.
1: You say it's still time to stay defensive in equities and fixed income. Uh, just quickly, what does that mean uh, specifically in each asset class?
11: Sure. So within equities, we would stay up in market cap. We really like large caps. We like the sector mix and we like kind of the quality characteristics, right? Lower debt, higher ROEs, et cetera. Um we like the US over international, so we would kinda of stick with that theme too. Um, the sectors we like are energy, materials and healthcare. We think those have kind of been left behind by some of the growth areas, so we would, you know, kind of maybe take a look at those. On the fixed income side, this is not the time to be chasing yield in, you know, lower rated parts of the market. We like treasuries and at these higher levels we'd be locking them in for long
1: term. Hmm. All right, Samir, appreciate the uh, the update. Thanks so much. Let's get to Contessa on MGM. What are we looking for, Contessa?
0: Well, in focus for MGM, here is the Macau performance. And I will tell you that the gross gaming revenues from the whole destination are up more than 4,000%. So there's a lot riding on what MGM has to say about that. that's 4,000% in July, and that's year on year. But with all the skepticism on the Chinese consumer, the question that we want to hear from the CEO, Bill Hornbuckle, is are they spending, are they going to keep spending on travel to the world's gaming capital? We had bullish commentary from Las Vegas Sands. We are also looking at the second quarter performance in the U.S. and Vegas against tough year-on-year comps. Again, we got bullish commentary yesterday from Caesars' CEO about the domestic situation heading to the back half of this year. And we'll see how MGM stacks up. Finally, I'm hearing a lot of whispers again about M&A, especially where Antain is concerned, That's the JV partner in BetMGM. CEO Bill Hornbuckle tried to put the speculation to bed earlier this year when he said he was putting those acquisition attempts in the rear view, although he added for now. But BetMGM's recent earnings update put some juice back into that story. So we'll have to see how that goes there, Mike.
1: For sure. And when it comes um, contested to Las Vegas and I guess to a degree, uh, Macau as well, you know, investors have been attempting to figure out if we're seeing peak travel. Peak lodging demand—you know the peak desire to get away. Uh, What can we glean so far from what some of the uh, the the gaming companies have done? Okay, so you know
0: the two biggest operators in terms of footprint on the Strip are MGM Resorts and Caesars. What we heard from the CEO of Caesars yesterday, and he came on last call with me last night, he said, "Look, we think that we're going to get a five percent lift from F one alone, and." That the bookings, the forward bookings for Super Bowl in February are way ahead of where they would be and at rates far higher than typical. And so he said, when you're looking at the kind of displacement that happens, when you're bringing in those higher spending customers, you're displacing the lower segments. So even if you get fewer visitors into Vegas, they're spending more.
1: Uh, Formula One football and Taylor Swift is driving the uh, the travel and service economy uh, this summer. Uh, Contestant, thanks so much. Let's get to Christina on Qualcomm. What do you have, Christina?
5: Well, Qualcomm has really already set investors up with two warnings to avoid surprises. First warning was continued weak smartphone sales. Management already lowered its 2023 handset demand to high single digits year over year. Q3 demand, they're expecting to be worse than the normal seasonal drop off. And so the consensus right now on the street is that handset revenue will fall 1% quarter over quarter. The second warning from Qualcomm is about inventory levels. Management had guided for inventory drawdowns for, quote, at least the next couple of quarters. We're still in those next couple of quarters. They even called out a specific, quote, modem-only customer cutting orders. So that is presumably Apple. Now, with those warnings out of the way, investors will want more or want to hear more on whether the smartphone market has shown a bottom, And secondly, how Qualcomm can capitalize on AI moving forward. Recently, Qualcomm announced they would enable Meta's new large language model, Lama 2, to run on phones and PCs starting in 2024. That could be a big stream of revenue. The tech can even help run uh, virtual apps. So one quick mention, though, Mike. According to the Insider Score, no Qualcomm Insider has sold shares since mid-February. That's five months and no one sold, perhaps a bullish sign for the stock, but shares are down 2% before earnings come out.
1: Very interesting uh, poll, Christina. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. As we head into the close, little over a minute left. We're on pace for the S&P 500 to post its first 1% or greater loss since May 23rd. Uh, you see it down now about one percent percent. Also, the volatility index up to uh, its highest level since May 31st. So basically, we're sweeping away uh, this June and July mode of very calm grinding uptrends, at least for now. did mention earlier, the S&P 500 has been hovering most of the day uh, at this level. It's a 20-day uh, moving average. So that sometimes is a short-term uh, support area, though it has been a pretty broad-based sell-off today. About 80% of all S&P 500, of all New York Stock Exchange, volume has been to the downside. Not exactly a washout, but a pretty good uh, short-term shakeout. Treasury yields, part of the story as well. You have the 10-year above 4.07 to 4.08. Those highs on the cycle, more like four and a quarter. So that has uh, some folks on alert and people reassessing valuations right now. Although short-term yields have remained much more contained. So no big change in terms of the federal funds uh, outlook from the Fed as we head way ahead, looking toward the jobs number on Friday. Friday and the next Federal Reserve meeting in late September. That's going to do with the Dow down, about 344 points into the close. Let's turn it over to overtime with John Ford and Morgan Bradley.
11: Selling smoothies is what I do, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.